Welcome back to Entertainment Geekly. I'm Darren Franich. And you know what? Just sitting across from me today, not coming from anywhere special, just hanging out, living his life, being a typical guy, it's EW's Jeff Jensen. Jeff, how are you? I love that introduction. Thank you, Darren. Well, don't get used to it because <laughs> I've got a list of like 20 more that I'm going to use okay. next week. I love those two. One episode will just be all introductions. Jeff, <laughs> we have a couple things to talk about today. Uh, we have both seen the newest Cloverfield film. We're going to be discussing that in heavy spoilery detail. Uh, we are also going to be talking a bit about the new season of Daredevil. You've seen a lot of it. I've seen a tiny little bit of it. Maybe that's all I'll see. We'll go into that uh, in, a, in a little bit. But first up, Jeff, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane came out last weekend. Uh, did pretty well at the box office. Not as well as the first Cloverfield, but given the general sentiment that this is a very small movie that after all it's essentially just about three people inside of a bomb shelter I'd fair to say it did pretty well at the box office definitely yeah um, we saw Ten Cloverfield Lane together Jeff there's a lot to dig into but let's just go straight to the fact that uh, this movie ends in a pretty crazy way <laughs> so we're gonna go we're gonna cut straight to the end of Ten Cloverfield Lane which I'm, I, I'm guessing for a lot of people who have seen the movie and who are listening to this podcast um, th- th- there's a lot of opinions. If, if there's an opinion to be had about this movie, it's pretty much centers on the end of the film. Because the rest of the movie, I think, is really fun and really tense. Um, right. We meet Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who I've always loved, um, and it's a great showcase for her. Uh, she is trapped in a bomb shelter with John Goodman and a guy from the newsroom. Um, <laughs> there is a nice slow burn of tension. Um, I, I, I wrote this uh, online last week. Uh, this is just, unlike the first Cloverfield, which I also enjoyed, this movie is just a classic, let's point the camera at actors playing characters kind of a movie, and it does that very well. Then Mary Elizabeth Winstead escapes from the bomb shelter climbs up to what is supposed to be the apocalyptic wasteland of America, sees no apocalypse, thinks it's all good, and then it's not all good because she looks off in the distance, she's attacked by what I kind of thought was a... I've gone back and forth. Sometimes I, I call it a squid ship, and sometimes I call it a floating crustacean. What's <laughs> what's your own interpretation of that monster ship thing that we see at the end, Jeff? I, I definitely like... Oh, jeez, that's a really... I, I want to find a way to marry both of the things that you just said. Because I, I'm going to go with squid ship, but it's definitely got some like hard shell in there somewhere. Some hard shell, yeah. Like, like, because to me, the reason why I, I think I call it a squid ship is when its kind of gaping mouth is preparing to eat her and the car, yeah. that mouth looks uncannily like the giant squid's mouth from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Remember when like when like, when like Nemo and them are all fighting it and it's just this horrifying mouth thing that's opening up? Was that an implied, like, Blondie Rapture joke, too? What do you mean? You know the rap at the end of Rapture where he talks about, like, you know, like, uh, the monster that eat, that's eating cars? Um, no. Oh, gosh. Wait, really? Well, why, well, let me get the lyrics. Oh, well, okay. And, okay. Uh, Love uh, that idea. And, and and I think that also, that would also fit in with the rough aesthetic because, like, because that song came out, what, early 80s, maybe? Yes. Late like 70s, early 80s? One thing, I, one thing I liked a lot about 10 Cloverfield Lane as a J.J. Abrams product is it was set in that kind of Dharma initiative, late 70s, early 80s, you know, pro-analog space. Like, like, like I, I really loved how John Goodman's bomb shelter was just this perfect bespoke, like, J.J. Abrams man cave with, with VHS tapes and, and, and DVDs. Um, so she uh, manages to fight off the giant squid ship thing using her Tom Cruise and War of the Worlds powers of just kind of just kind of understanding all I need to do is throw an exploding thing into a this thing's cocktail. mouth. Yeah. Which okay now 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 okay let's talk about this for a second. I want to drill down here. Now, Jeff, uh, in, in my lifetime, I haven't made too many Molotov cocktails, but I know you have a past that you don't like to talk about. Yeah. Now, with a Molotov cocktail, can you just? You can't just set alcohol on fire. I thought you had to like like pour, pour gasoline in there or something. Can right? You just, can you just take like, like like a bottle of Jack Daniels and like, like like attach it to a flame and then throw it? It's and like explodes? A, that must have been like an, a, a million proof bottle of whiskey. <laughs> she or, was... or was it? Uh, was it? So let's just talk about what I uh, I, I did. I, I did like the storytelling uh, in Ten Cloverfield Lane a lot. Um, it's been commented on by others, but I just want to praise the fact that there's just almost like not a wasted frame or moment in that movie. Every piece of visual information 
um, is very important to various things in the movie. And um, e even the things that seem kind of throwaway um, are, are, I think, are important to reflect upon um, at the end. Everything from the fact that, yes, in the first two minutes of that movie, we get a shot of a bottle of alcohol. Um, whether it's, I don't know if it was a bottle of wine, champagne, whiskey, I, I don't know really what it was. Um, the, the, the million proof whiskey, yes. Yeah. Um, I was kind of hoping it would be like a bottle of McCutcheon because I think that's the brand from the from the Bad Robot universe. You're still building up the Bad Robot universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Never never stop. Yeah, the yeah. Bad Robot cinematic yeah. universe is a fact. But but even like I think at the end, like reflecting on why did she, you know, the the, the argument that we never hear um, uh, um, Michelle have with her husband or boyfriend or whoever. Bradley Cooper, phone, yeah. Bradley Cooper on the phone. I mean. And then kind of reflecting on it at the end, I mean, you kind of wonder if there was some kind of pattern of abuse there or he, he was a bad boyfriend or whatever, why she was running away from all of that. Like everything kind of works together to kind of both either A, kind of work for the plot or B, kind of like think about her, her, her character arc. So I just want to like say I love the fact that um, at the end that this, this, this bottle of whiskey or whatever it is becomes the weapon by which she destroys them. That's just really good storytelling. That said, yeah, I was kind of really confused about how powerful that bottle was he could have been to blow up that shit. Well, let me, let me counter that for a second, because I see what you're saying, that this is sort of the classic, like, Chekhov's everything. Like, like everything that happens in minutes one through five of this movie needs to come back around. I'm not so sure it's the most delicate storytelling. Sure. To yes. literally be like, all right, like, uh, you know, we're setting up that she's leaving. We know she's going to need some way to attack aliens later. Uh, like, ha have her grab a, a, a bottle of scotch. Right, like, yeah, so, yeah the, the, the pushback on that is, like, for, for, for something that ends up proving to be the thing that ends up saving her life and saving the day, we only see it once. You yes. know, it's just that one shot at the beginning of the movie and we find out that somehow it's still in the car and it didn't come down with her. A... To, and you kind of wonder that if, if maybe a, a better better storytelling, um, this isn't bad storytelling, but better storytelling uh, would have maybe like brought that bottle of whiskey down into the bomb shelter. Maybe she has some kind of personal oh, attachment, attachment to it. To it. I'm, just I'm just kind of reminding, reminding us, us that, that it exists. exists you know, you know? Um, uh, uh, and uh, um, but as it is, the fact that you see it once. And then all of a sudden it's used again at the end. It, it, it's almost like it's if, if you had told me that there were massive reshoots on the movie to get the ending because they decided in editing or in post-production that the movie needed a new ending. And they were going to tack on the alien stuff at the end, but they somehow had to make it work. And so they shot an insert of the bottle of whiskey as part of the reshoots so they could throw it in at the beginning to make all that work. That that would also make complete sense to me. And I, I'm not saying that's what they did. and I'm not saying that's my theory. I'm just kind of putting that idea out there to critique the the slight clunkiness of the storytelling that we got. I'm glad you bring that up, Jeff. Uh, uh, one of our readers slash listeners, Dan Gorgone, uh, emailed um, just to talk a little bit about the ending. Uh, if, if I may read from that email, um, if this Reddit post, he links to one of many Reddit posts about 10 Cloverfield Lane, is to be believed, Bad Robot swapped out a dark nuclear ending for a monster ending. Basically, it went from it's a twist because he was telling the truth the whole time to it's a twist because he was telling the truth the whole time with aliens. That apparently was all they had to do to make the original script Cloverfield ready. Cloverfield ready, by the way, is my new favorite adjective. Uh, using that template, there's no reason we can't do the same with other movies. Room would have been so much better <laughs> if Jack and Joy had gone back to visit Room at the end, but discover the whole time it was really a bunker full of thousands of similar kidnapping experiments and old Nick was an alien. See? Way better. Okay. Now, what I like about what Dan is saying there is I sort of agree with him and I sort of agree with the theory you just put forward that this was a movie that was exactly what we saw for the first 90 minutes of it and that in a way that is feels feels maybe purposefully tacked on the last 10 minutes or something completely different. Right. I mean, if you would have told me that that's what would have happened, I, I, I would believe that because that is kind of to some degree 
how I experienced the movie. Now, was it a fun experience for you, though? Well, before we before we push off from that subject, um, I just kind of want to bring in like something else that I recently read, and I wish I can cite the essay, but I recently read. Um, an essay that defends um, the ending while acknowledging a lot of the clunk that we're talking about. Was a lot it of the, was one by Tasha Robinson, maybe, or uh, is it the one where she was like defending sort of like the the, the feminist themes of the uh, yes, of the yes, ending? Yes. yes. Okay. So you're gonna you're gonna dial that up while I I'll talk. Look that up. Yep. Um, which is that um, uh, in in the course of this piece, she discusses the differences between the original script. And um, and then and then a rewrite that was done and then shot um, either so either this you know either before or after original shooting but regardless this is what I thought that was interesting in her analysis and it sounds really correct in terms of the the, the difference between the original script and the ending is that it's not just so in the original script apparently um, uh, uh, Michelle gets out of the bunker but John Goodman does not die. Um, but she gets in the car and she drives back home. She drives back to Chicago and she discovers that, yes, some kind of like apocalyptic event has occurred and Chicago is decimated. So, yes, the, the story has its case. You know, everything is true. John Goodman is exactly as creepy as you think he is. He's a, a probably a child abductor. He might be a serial killer. He's certainly a misogynist, exploitive, creepy uh, a, a man. Everything bad that someone can be right. in a movie, he ultimately is. But yes. he's also telling the truth in the sense of like something bad has happened in the world. Um, uh, versus the ending that we got, which was that yes, the. Uh, like which is a, a different kind of apocalypse. The aliens have come, and now they're kind of hunting humans and eating them. But instead of just sort of ending on this sort of creepy Twilight Zone ending, where we get the feeling of a character that is just overwhelmed with despair. She's been she's been kidnapped. She's been abducted. She's been abused. Her great triumph is just escaping, only to find out that yeah, the world is screwed. Instead, we get this ending that, yeah, we, we get the alien invasion, apocalypse, and all of that. But it gives her some kind of heroic kind of like uh, agency at the end. She gets to fight back. She gets to kind of like claim her life once and for all. And then she gets another heroic moment in which... Another vastly less believable heroic moment. <laughs> where she has to decide between sort of like running away back to her life, old life, what she knew, and this sort of like truncated, like, you know... Horrible uh, oh, sorry. life, or do you mean or, do you mean the part when the guy on the radio says character, character who has to choose between helping or running away? What will you do? Help she, or run away? <laughs> she chooses to help, right? And um, so I mean, just like the, will you make the moral decision or will you make the selfish decision? Right. But look, look, what I think about that ending versus the original ending is is that I, 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 I. I don't mind. I, I think I like the ending that we got from Ten Cloverfield Lane versus the original ending, which was much darker. It's which was like. much darker, and just seems to sort of trap her so much in this sort of like victim identity. Um, there, there isn't a lot of individual hope for her. That said, um, I, I did feel that the ending that we got. While the, the essay that you just pulled up was written by, uh, it is by Tasha Robinson. It's on The Verge, and it's called "The Ten Cloverfield Lane Backlash Is Missing the Point," aka "You're Wrong, Darren." <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I and like, I think that what I struggled with in her essay was I really appreciated the themes that she was identifying, and I think that she's absolutely cor- correct in the sense of like, if this is an allegory about. Um, about a, a, a woman who's been victimized by abuse and reclaiming her life. It isn't just enough for her, uh, to, in, in terms of telling an honest version of that story, to just have her escape a guy. You know, like, there needs to be some acknowledgement that, 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 that for, for anyone that's trying to overcome that experience, it's much more emotionally difficult than that. Yes, there's getting away, but there's just a world of stuff that you got to work through, and there's, 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 
there's a, there's a lot of sort of internal redemption that you have to kind of figure out for yourself. The metaphorical squid ship of society right. will always yes. be there to victimize you unless you are able to throw the metaphorical Molotov cocktail of freedom. I get what she's going for, and I really admire it, and I kind of get it. I think that what she doesn't give enough like credence to in her essay, which I think that she acknowledges, but then kind of really wants to like like toss away, is like I think that there is a legitimate critique to be had of the movie of an ending that feels really tacked on and out of the blue. And if it doesn't feel organic and doesn't feel real, then it discourages you from engaging the thematic kind of stuff that is actually really good about that ending. So I think um, it's a matter of it works very well on the thematic level that you were talking about and, and that Tasha Robinson was arguing. I have two kind of responses to that. One is, I think for it to work in that way, then I think you need to be able to look back and believe every step of that journey. And much like a lot of other bad robot productions, when you go back and look at this movie, there are no end to the holes you can put, you can pluck into it. Like, if John Goodman's character is the sort of super OCD survivalist we were meant to understand, how does he leave literally a bloody earring? He, 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 right. may, as, he may as well have left a note that says, I'm the killer, I better not tell my friends. Um, you know, how does he miss that there is help scrawled on the window? There, or he hasn't been outside. Oh, well, well, well that, 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 that's a good point. There are, because there are just things like that that start jumping out at you. Now, now all that being said, I'm, uh, you know, if, if, if the argument is, you know, don't be too much of a stickler for plot, like, that's all fine. But then you do get to the point where what makes, I think, and, and I just point out, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, if there's anything good to come out of this movie, it's that I think we have now seen her be both a compelling drama lead and a compelling action lead all in the same movie, which is great. But what makes the first part so good is that she is a... She always feels like a true human being to me. And there's something about the way the ending so completely moves into a different genre space where she is now the kind of person who seems to know implicitly how do I avoid getting eaten by a little raptor eyeball thing? And how do I, you know, as I am being, you know, in midair, being pulled up, you know, feet in, into the air by a huge ship, I, I can still think quickly enough to to incinerate this ship. And so there are just... Moreover, she, she survives when, the, when, when she succeeds in blowing up the squid ship. Yes. And then the car that she's in, like, plummets, like, what, 50, 70 feet out of the <laughs> yes. air? And, 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 and she's not buckled up. <laughs> so she should have gone completely through that one. That, that really bothered me. Yeah, this this and this is the stuff where because you know, what's interesting with this movie is you, you both should and should not talk about it in terms of being a Cloverfield movie. Because A, no one really knows what a Cloverfield movie is, even now. I guess all we can really say about it is it is a fundamentally human-focused drama wh- wherein the parts of a monster movie that are usually maybe two minutes are now the whole movie. You know, like right. like, like the parts of a Godzilla movie that focused on the human characters, that is 95% of the movie and you barely ever actually see the monster, which is fine in some respects. But it is strange to me that the first Cloverfield, however much people want to hate on it, it felt like it was all of a piece somehow. And, and even ultimately, its perspective on what story it was telling, the fact that it actually was kind of a romance in the end, I, I always found to be quite quite poignant and, 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 you know, almost kind of emotionally believable, even if those characters were not as interesting as the characters in this movie. And uh, there is just a, a real violation that happens in the last ten minutes I think a lot of people are reacting to, because... It does just, it doesn't seem like they, they did the work to get you there. Right, right, now, right. all that being said, if the argument that they have is literally like, yeah, we wanted, to, we wanted to do what people have always talked about doing, where you have a movie that is one way for 95 minutes, and then just in the last bit, completely becomes and, something different. Right. And I don't, I, I don't mind that, to be really honest with you. I, like, I, I, I get what you're saying, the violation idea. I get that people have problems with it. And it doesn't complete. It, it's not as elegantly, and and uh, isn't as, you know, it needed to be done better. Yeah, maybe. But it doesn't sink the movie for me. That's yes. kind of I really want to like stake a, a, yes. a claim there. It, it doesn't sink the movie for me. And I do agree with the argument 
being made that the fact that it is a it is a Cloverfield brand movie, which I think that they were trying to really market to us and really establish up front that this is essentially a movie that takes place in the Cloverfield universe. And in the Cloverfield universe, there is some kind of like monster slash alien invasion that's taken place. That is just perpetually happening. Right. Um, oh, people and, people in different cities hear about it one by one. Right. So like first it happens in New York. At the same York. time. Right. Like, you know, yeah. like the, the, whatever's happening in New York is now happening here. Everywhere, um, yeah. yeah. Um, the one thing I would other say, uh, other thing I would say is that um, in terms of the ending that we got and why we may have gotten it, um, it, it, it does feel to me an expression of a kind of screenwriting philosophy that says that your hero has to solve a problem for himself or herself in the course of the movie and then by the end of the movie, you know? So it isn't just enough via this screenplay philosophy to give us a really taut thriller um, and claustrophobic kind of like trapped room thriller in which you know, someone gets abducted and then they have to find a way to get out of it and has to play honestly by all of the rules to, to, to manage to escape. Um, you know, that isn't enough for a movie like this. The character needs to have some kind of like spiritual problem or psychological problem or problem from the past no, or something like needs, that. It always that, needs that, to that be... The character that needs to get sorted out. So for here, what this ending does is it, it, it allows, you know... It allows for the movie for her to work out that problem and engage its meanings um, in a way that is consistent in one respect of the movie, which is that it's just a non-stop, high-stakes, right. physical action movie. What you're saying is suspense. interesting, and, and this may factor into what we're going to talk about in a second. Um, it feels to me like things that are not superhero stories are becoming superhero stories now, in the sense that... With the Mary Elizabeth Winstead character in this movie, she is very appealing just right off the bat as a person. And I think it's because we meet her in this moment of, like, I'm leaving my life behind. Like, what a, what an awesome way to just suddenly meet someone. There's no, no setup there. We don't really know why she's doing that. That's really interesting. But the movie does feel the need to be like, A, let's give her kind of a psychological origin story in the dialogue sequence between her and Newsroom Guy where she talks about her past abuse and she, she even talks about what I would term the Uncle Ben moment of I should have helped that boy that one time and I didn't and, and it haunts me. And in turn, the movie then gives her the superhero option of saying, will you now defeat that wound and do the right thing? And I guess my problem is that if that's what the Cloverfield movies are now going to be, because that's not what the first Cloverfield was. The first Cloverfield was very much like, these are just kind of random, even kind of maybe boring human beings, but actual human beings, and they sort of don't matter that much in the grand scheme of things, but, but this movie will focus on them nevertheless, which I find really interesting. And I think that, you know... This movie, when you think about how the setup for this movie in a Twilight Zone episode would have resulted in some sort of an ending where this is just, you know, this is not me saying this is how the ending should have been, but like, you know, in, in the Rod Serling universe, the ending would have been something like, well, like, now you're out, but guess what? Like, the real prison is outside. Or, you know, guess what? Like, you know, just because you've gotten out of this scrape, this does not help you in the end. And the fact that this movie seems to land on the idea of what you're talking about, which is she must have a triumph. It must be a personal triumph. And no matter what else is happening in the world, that personal triumph will be felt in such a way that she can explode the the invader squid ships using her the power of gumption. I don't know. I find that's about more cynical in a way, because it seems to me like it's such a, like, we want to end it happily somehow. We want to give her the... the, the Hero moment, and it's weird I, how I that, like two things can be true, which is I think that's really powerful and meaningful to a lot of people, and, and including me, mm -hmm. as allegory. Yes, um, but at the same time, it conforms to um, and is an expression of certain like screenwriting philosophies yes. that just kind of feel honestly kind of lame. The one thing I would push back on, uh, and, and for people who really defend the ending, including the, the essay that we're referring to, is that. There seems to be a, an assumption that if she didn't get this opportunity to uh, to to learn something about herself and, and have this victory and have this sort of heroic agency at the end, um, 
that if all of it, if and, and in terms of like the allegory, that it wouldn't be enough for the allegory for her to just escape this man and then drive off, um, because that would somehow imply that uh, a kind of like, and then everything was better, you know, for mm-hmm. her, you know. Um, I, I push back against that because that's that's right. not necessarily my. If that's how the movie had ended, that wouldn't have been my assumption. I guess it is crazy that, that I'm, it is my, it is I, crazy I, I that I'm assume that like oh yeah she escaped this guy, but like I I, I imagine in which a, a life for her in which like like life goes on and she's got stuff that she's got to work out. Um, but maybe this experience taught her something about her own strength and she could apply it to whatever comes uh, next. I didn't necessarily need another allegory tacked on to the end of right. the movie that got, like like expresses that meaning. I acknowledge, by the way, it's crazy that I'm trying to describe this as a happy ending when the movie makes very clear America is falling to alien right. spirit monster yes. invaders. Um, it's trying I guess, to walk a very careful line there. Listen, deep down, all I want... Maybe this just shows my favorite science fiction movie ending ever is still Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is the <laughs> darkest, saddest, totally. oh, most yes. demoralizing... You remember this, right? Oh, yeah. This is this is the end of the second Planet of the Apes movie, which I've, I wrote about this online. I, I love that movie, and someone recently told me that apparently... Guillermo del Toro does also. Um, of course, he, he likes lots of things, but that specifically gives me hope that I'm not crazy. But the end of Beneath the Planet of the Apes is just, given that the rest of the movie is a very endearing, but quite low-rent like sequel, I would say. This is not the era of, like, we're putting a lot of money into sequels. This is the era of, like, reuse some of the sets and we'll get Heston back for five minutes. The way that movie ends is just so incredible. That's a really <laughs> weird movie on its own. And then a weird movie as a sort of sequel, sort of being kind of like in a sort of like intertextual like discussion relationship with the first one. Because that movie is essentially a complete reboot and repeat of the first movie with a prologue and epilogue that like makes use of one week they had with Charlton Heston. (laughs) Um, But like in service of really downbeat, creepy, provocative. It's also like, a lot more political, like, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. All right, we can't oh, make this about... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, one other thought to finish off 10 Cloverfield Lane. And just, again, want to express a lot of admiration for the movie with the caveat that I struggle like a lot of people with the ending. Uh, I, I, I'll live with it, but I think it's really flawed, and I think it's more flawed than even its defenders like want to argue for. Um and but I do want to say um, real quick that I support the idea of Cloverfield becoming this sort of anthology franchise in which it takes place in a science fiction alien invasion with society overrun by giant monsters universe in which we're telling like these really kind of small uh, human stories that might still be heightened reality themselves um, that it's it's that these stories that are not necessarily about fighting monsters, but stories that are taking on in the shadow of the monsters. I think that's a really cool idea, and I think it would be better as a TV series. As an anthology, you're saying? As an anthology TV series, because I think as long as it is a franchise film, as long as it's it's a movie franchise, I think it's going to continue giving us really uh, complicated, uh, hit-the-post allegory and emotional stories like the one that we have. I think that if it was like a a half-hour anthology series on like sci-fi or Netflix, you could probably get darker, edgier endings that that were kind of like maybe um, wrestling for and advocating for here. You want like the bad robot mystery science hour, basically. I would would support that. Uh, Jeff, speaking of things that we maybe support in principle, (laughs) but uh, can't support specifically what they're producing right now. Uh, the new season of Daredevil debuted in its entirety over the weekend. Daredevil is the uh, lead-off forefront series of the Marvel Netflix, Marvel Knights, gritty Hell's Kitchen universe. Um, it is the second season of Daredevil. In between the first season of, of Daredevil and this, we've got the Jessica Jones show. Coming up soon is Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Uh, Jeff, you gave, in your capacity as EW's TV critic, uh, you gave the new uh, uh, t- the, the new season a C. Yes. Um, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your thoughts on it? I know that you saw the first seven episodes, I believe, right? Yeah, I, I, um, they made seven available for technical reasons. I could only watch the first six. 
Um, technical so reasons I, like after after six, you were just like, nope, nope. <laughs> technical reasons like the 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 the, uh, the screener player at the Netflix website kept on breaking down during episode seven. I was like, I, I'm on deadline. I've seen enough. I really don't think I need to see any more um, to to give this a C. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was I was very disappointed by the six, first six six episodes of Daredevil season two. I, I say that as a guy who really loved um, the first season of Daredevil. Um, it got a little sluggish, like a lot of Netflix seasons do, like in the middle of the uh, of, of the season. But I thought it was like really well done. Um, I really liked uh, uh, Matt Murdock's sort of journey of finding his proper heroic expression within Hell's Kitchen. Vincent D'Onofrio as, as, as Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the Kingpin, was just this great character, this really great villain with a really great arc where he kind of like transcended the sort of like, you know, mob boss uh, uh, archetype of, of the comic book to be this sort of like doomed romantic anti-hero trying to save his city through this sort of like mad criminal scheme of like of 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 uh, of, of urban renewal um and I thought the action was great in the first season, and I thought a lot of the themes were great. I thought the supporting cast that they surrounded Charlie Cox was really great. Um, uh, it was it was just kind of really well done. And at the time, at the time, it was I think a step above the usual superhero TV thing that we saw because um, uh, I think it took the kind of like the the raw edge of say something like the CW's Arrow. Um, and really kind of took it next level and made it kind of really credible. I loved how in the first season of the show, they dialed down the marvelness of it all. So there were, really wasn't any costumes. There wasn't really any... They dialed down all the superhero tropes. I mean, it, it had almost barely a scant connection to the Marvel movie universe. The one you know? connection they had, which I actually really liked, and I, I, I remember uh, pointing this out last year uh, when I did the review of the first season, I, 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 I gave it an A-. minus. And the one connection they had was that the Avengers incident when a lot of New York was attacked by aliens, the destruction it created essentially made Hell's Kitchen now, as we know it in the real world, where it is a very gentrified haven of bars and restaurants, it sort of, it sort of, it, it bombed it back to the Manhattan Stone Age, essentially. <laughs> right. It made it a place full of, like, predatory land developers, and, uh, you know, it was just, it, you know, all, all the mobs were, were moving back in. And that's that's not an idea that, you know, it's it's not, it's not a, a, a particularly complex view of what would happen if a, if a disaster hit Manhattan. But, like, I, I loved how that was kind of the one thing. Other than that, they did not talk about yeah, Avengers or S.H.I.E.L.D. or anything. They, like they used the, 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 the relationship to, to the Avengers was that it created a little pocket universe for them to play in. Yes. And uh, one that had a lot of interesting themes and gritty resonance and uh, political resonance, and I, I love that. Here in the new season, I just had a lot of problems with it. Um, uh, everything from, you know, I think that Matt, I really like Matt Murdock, and I like Foggy Nelson, and I like Karen Page. I like them as, I like their little law practice, and, um, you know, if all the, the show was, I think, was a story about scrappy underdog lawyers representing the disenfranchised of Hell's Kitchen. I think I actually like really might like that. Series. This is the best David E. Kelly. A, this yeah. is like the best David E. Kelly show that David E. Kelly never made, right? Yeah, I, right. I, I always think that when it's like just the three of them all together. They're, you know, it's like they're they're all really lovable people, basically uh -huh. the three of them. Um, and you know, and yeah, like the cases they take on, you could see that being a whole show. Right. Just <laughs> but this is a show that no, that after after a whole season one of waiting for. For, you know, of like bringing the audience along and making you wait for Matt Murdock to go full Daredevil. It seems to have this sense of obligation here in season two to like give you Daredevil up the wazoo. And so he's in the costume a lot and he's fighting a lot of thugs and they immediately put him in conflict with this new character, um, actually a character from the comics, the Punisher, played by John Berenthal, who's, uh, or Berenthal, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. And, and, and John's, like, really good in the role of the Punisher, this sort of, like, killing machine driven by vendetta and tragedy to just wage war on the mobs of New York and just slaughter them. I mean, he just, he wants to kill them. Um, but he enters into then this sort of, like, conflict with Daredevil, who is, is a brute with a bleeding heart, but he doesn't kill. 
Um, and so that they are sort of at war with each other about how to wage war with a common enemy. And the first four episodes are just kind of really this sluggish, like plot light, really flat line arc of drama in which they, they fight then they have long, boring debates about kind of like the nature of the proper nature of justice. And there's just this, this barest of thinnest of lines between these two guys. I mean, they're both basically like vigilante thugs, uh, but the only difference is that um, the Punisher doesn't kill. And we're supposed Punisher does to, kill, yeah. I'm sorry, Punisher does kill. And we're supposed to like, like think at least, I, I think that there's maybe an argument to be made that um, a, a vigilante who kills is less righteous than a vigilante who doesn't kill. But the way that this drama presents both of them, I, I really almost see no difference. I mean, the way that, like, Daredevil brutal... I mean, the way that Daredevil... I mean, this is where the action scenes in this in this show that are so highly praised, and they're very exciting to watch, work against the philosophical points of the show because it's so brutal... I don't get the sense at all that Daredevil is careful in any way to like protect the lives of the people that he's defeating. I mean, he's like, it doesn't, I don't get the sense of a guy who's like, I, I get the sense of a guy who's beating the, the, the crap out of people and doesn't care whether they live or die. You know what I mean? Can we talk to you about how, because, uh, you know, what you just pointed out is true. So I, I just watched uh, the first episode of the new season, and what struck me about it is. However well-produced the fight scenes are, and we can eternally go back and forth on what constitutes good action and bad action, but, you know, there is a certain aspect of choreography and filmmaking in these action scenes where I'm kind of like, this is fun to watch in a way that even, like, the stuff on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I I just find to be so ridiculous and so, you know, 90s syndicated television level. But as good as the filmmaking can be there... Some of the filmmaking of on this show is just so flabby. I mean, right. there is there is a scene in the first episode, and of course they can only get away with this because they know people are going to binge this. They do not have any anxiety about like let's at least make sure we're we're making things move at a certain pace. Not that everything needs to be like Lee Daniels Empire level fast, but you know there is a pace that you're used to with television. There's a scene in the first uh, the first episode of Daredevil where Foggy and Matt are walking to work, and they they have three different conversations on that walk, and yeah. they and like and like they keep on pausing in the middle of the conversation, and like you know Foggy will say like Matt, I'm really worried about you being Daredevil and Matt says like Foggy don't worry about me and then they keep on walking for a while and you know it's it, it works for a little bit just on the level of like this looks like a real place you know they're they're filming on the streets of right. New York or what looks like New York and that's that's right. nice but there's so many scenes in this show that are just held for about a minute too long or 90 seconds too long and, and you know in the, in the first season I noticed a little bit of that but only towards the end and this season what you're what you're talking about in the first four episodes I just feel that on a micro on a micro basis even um there's a moment in uh, the first episode uh, after the Punisher has killed the first gang of ludicrously, you know, these are the most Irish, Irish thugs you've ever met. And this bothered me less last year somehow, because the Russians, as much as they were sort of Russian stereotype mobsters, they were given some meta characterization. These Irish mobsters are literally Irish mobsters out of a kind of Dick Tracy serial. There's a moment after they all get killed when the camera kind of lingers on one of their bodies and the cops say, he took his hand. And you see that indeed his hand has been cut off and the camera holds there just a little too long for you to be like that's that's fake that's that is not right. an actual and, and I, I feel that a lot in how this show is made specifically more so even than, than a lot of other Netflix shows which have that same flabbiness and yeah. I, I I'm you know like does, does that improve at all as, as the show goes along as you get past the initial four episode arc yeah um, let me respond to a lot of things that you said there one is um, as I kind of said in my review, I too have a huge problem with the depiction of Matt's world, specifically in this season. Because yes, it's an uneasy blend of just real world Manhattan by day, but then at night it seems to go like becomes this like this Gotham City underworld 
of just these crazy racially ethnically oriented gang caricatures and um, I, I had a problem with that because um, you know for for vigilantes like these guys to make sense in this show like Batman makes sense in Gotham City because Gotham City is presented as this completely broken society that is completely overwhelmed yeah. by evil and corruption and and larger than life, like mobster, monster villains, yeah, it's, right? It's it's the nightmare you have sleeping outside on the streets of New York at two a.m. Like right. that is kind yeah. of what you're, like, what they're going for. At but all in the times world there. of Daredevil, like vigilantes as absolutely brutal and absolutely convinced of the utter evil of society are really harder to believe when you have long scenes in, in, like the ones that you're describing in which you have two guys walking around the, like the, 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 the city and everyone is like, like it's society is working, you know? Yes. Like, but, but the only problems are these like, you know, Irish biker gangs that hang out in like, like oh. derelict, like, like buildings, like plotting evil, but never doing evil. When, when, they, when they get to like the evil biker gang, that is when I'm kind of like, all right, yeah, we, 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 like, frankly, now you might as well just do the Warriors, you know, right, like, you right, might right. as well just bring in the baseball furies and bring in the Lizzie's. I mean, that, that's kind of the level we're at now as yeah. far as, as far as any attempt at my believing that these gangs you're setting up have any reality right. whatsoever. But to your point specifically, I mean, you're kind of like, again, kind of like getting at something that a lot of critics have been wrestling with, with Netflix shows, which is that the, the single the single episode nature of these shows are just so like, they're not very satisfying. Um, there's not a lot happens per se, but there's these like long, drawn out, flabby, like no structure scenes and like the the, 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 the pace is so slow, it, get, it gets fast and it kind of slows down. Usually you kind of see this happen in particular like in the middle of the seasons. So the early episodes can actually be pretty kind of like well-constructed single episodes that seem to be moving things along and then things kind of go really right. flat then, and flabby. Then, then it's like suddenly everyone becomes chess pieces that are right. being very gradually moved. Right. Like, and, like, and, yeah. and then things end, you know, and so at least... There, that 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 narrative structure, like, um, I well, yeah. So that that's the, the usual thing that we complain about. But here, with with uh, with, with, with Daredevil, like, the the thing that I I, I I'm baffled. I, I I'm left with just kind of inventing theories to explain like the nature and structure of the episodes that we get. Where, like you said, you have these like long scenes of talking, talk that doesn't necessarily. Build, you know, it's just like yeah, you have three conversations in one that are designed to impart a lot of information. There's a long scene, like either in the second or third episode, in which Daredevil is like chained to a chimney on a rooftop, <laughs> where he and Punisher engage in a long dialogue that should really have. I mean, it almost feels like a bottle episode. And th th this, this, if you're going to do this, and you're going to have a conversation between these two different people about their different views of the world and kind of revealing information about it. Like, yeah, it's, you get the sense that the nature of the conversation is Daredevil's being held captive and he's trying to buy some time to get out of his chains. So he wants to talk to this guy. So they, they use the time to like, like talk about different philosophies, but you almost get the sense that what the scene really wants to do is try to find ways. Matt Murdock is sensing some truth about Frank Castle and so trying to like push the right buttons to get him to kind of like talk and disclose and share like like his origin story if you will or kind of reveal his pathology but it's so artlessly done it's yeah. there's just there's there's no real arc or build to this thing but that's just all of Daredevil it's just like these skimpy sluggishly paced scenes really long scenes and so I kind of find myself just like 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 theorizing like how do we get stuff like this and the, the one thought I kind of had is, is that it makes me wonder if they have like budget problems on the show. Like they have a certain amount of money and they have a certain obligation to produce a certain number of episodes and they spend it on cast and they definitely have to save enough time in their shooting days to create these really intricate like choreographed ballets of violence that they do. But it doesn't really leave a lot of time for the other like 40 minutes of the show. And so it kind of, it, 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 my, my theory is is that then what it what it puts the show in position of is writing these really long dialogue scenes 
with just people in a room or people walking down the street, like, like, like talking. It's like, it, it just makes me wonder if like the typical show has like, um, uh, like two and a half weeks to shoot. Like Daredevil has like 10 days to shoot, but four of those days have to be devoted to a 10 minute fight scene, leaving <laughs> right. six days to shoot like 40 other minutes of material, which makes like limits the number of setups that you can have, the number of scenes that you can have. So you have to have longer, talkier, more boring scenes. Does it improve? Yes, it does improve. Because when you get to about episode five or six, Electra Electra shows up. And not that she's awesome and not that Daredevil story-wise goes next level, but there are now more characters. And it requires like more scenes and more subplots. And the subplots become more interesting. And so like I think Daredevil, like Matt Murdock's chemistry with uh, Elektra is more interesting. I think the actors have better chemistry. Meanwhile, Karen Page is given a storyline with Frank Castle. And I think they're interesting together. And so we have more plot. We have more characters. We have more relationships. And we have a, a feeling of busier episodes, shorter scenes too. And um, I, I think they're, it's, it's still not awesome, but it, it, it feels a little more satisfying. I, before I turn it over to you, because I know that you have something to say here, um, I want to acknowledge that I don't know, like, if my theory of Netflix, like, budget problems or Daredevil budget problems or, or limited budget or shooting schedule thing is, is at all true. I'm just putting that out there as, as, as me trying though. to, like, like, figure out a theory to explain why we get episodes like well, this. Well, don't you, you know? think, though, I mean, to me, like, the, the fight scene from Daredevil season one, I look back on that now and I kind of think, like... Well, good for you. You spent your whole budget on that. And and that scene was so good that I, that probably... That convinced me that this is this kind of a show. Like, it can do... And I don't just mean that in terms of cool action. I mean, in terms of the filmmaking that you will be working with. This is the kind of show you are. And in fact, no, it's the kind of show where it kind of does the contemporary version of, like, multicam drama, where it's a lot of scenes of people walking, and, you know, it's pretty clear to me that they haven't necessarily worked out any interesting way of people moving across the screen. They're just literally kind of walking, and they're kind of hanging out there, and you feel that a lot. But um, what I was going to just say, Jeff, is uh, will you continue watching the show now? Uh, you know, you're, you, you're at about the halfway point over the weekend. All the episodes were unveiled on the public. Were you, did you see enough of an upturn that you think you'll be, you'll, you'll, you'll be finishing out the season? My usual philosophy with stuff like this is that if I gave, I mean... I feel like I was pretty hard on Daredevil, like the first six episodes. I, I, I stand by everything that I said. Um, it did show signs of an improvement, like I said, in episodes five and six. Um, and it makes me want to watch the rest of the show because if it, can, if it can continue improving, I feel like I owe it to kind of like say something. So I will be watching out of just sort of the due diligence of my job. But... At the same time, if I was just watching it as a fan of this genre or just, you know, interested in good quality television, I mean, I don't know if I would have made it past episode three. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, like, because uh, my job is not specifically requiring me to watch it, I have a real problem with the fact that the end of episode one, it is so... Uh, I, I would say it's both good TV writing as a way to cover up bad TV writing. That after an episode where nothing much really happens, they end on the cliffhangeriest of all cliffhangers. The end of episode one is literally like all of a sudden the Punisher comes in and shoots Daredevil and he falls off a building. I mean, people, that would have been embarrassing as an ending of a TV episode back when there were actually weeks between TV episodes. So the cliffhanger, the cliffhanger of that is you're led to believe that Daredevil got shot and he is uh, and he is horribly injured or or possibly dead. Which I assume is it is established in the first minute of episode two that is not the case. I'm guessing, right? Unless unless, unless in fact unless in fact the rest of the, of the season is a mystery about is Daredevil dead or not. Can I tell you something that's even worse? <laughs> Please do. They basically do it again at the end of the second episode. No. Yeah, because I if I'm recalling correctly, yeah. So Batman uh, I'm sorry, Batman. Daredevil, who's practically Batman. Understandable yeah. confusion. Daredevil escapes. Yeah, it's um, like spoiler alert. 
Um, uh, which is that I think the idea there is that you find out that the bullet basically just kind of like grazed his his head of his oh, uh, whatever classic cl- classic bullet grave. But the Punisher, um, the Punisher, you find out did that on purpose because he didn't want to kill him. So they end up fighting again at the end of the second episode, oh. and in this fight, they I think they both end up like tumbling over the side of a building together or something like that. And that, that's the end of that episode. And then episode three, them two and Electra all tumble off the side right, of a building right. together. And then episode four, them and all the Irish mobsters tumble off but the side the, of a building. Episode three, I believe, is the episode then that begins where you find out that like Daredevil wakes up and he's chained to the chimney on top of a building, on, on top of a tenement. Uh, and, and Frank Castle is, is is alive and well, and he's got all of this ammunition, ammunition, all his guns up there, and he's basically putting a gun together over a period of most of the episode for a purpose that is ultimately revealed toward in the, the second half hour of that episode. So yeah, I was like, he's putting his gun together. <laughs> like, yeah, like but it's really like the, like it, it does. Oh, it, here's boy. how poorly directed and poorly written all of that is that yeah he's. He's putting together the gun, but it wasn't until about 25 minutes into all of this that I realized, oh, I think the episode wants me to wonder why he's building the gun. You know, um, because he's doing this for a reason. He's not just like cleaning his ammunition so they can, like, while they hang out and talk, which is how the episode feels. That's how bad, like, it's the, 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 the story. There's such an absence of storytelling going on in this sort of like scene between the two of them that you that uh, like I said like that's like these are these are the moments no build there's no good storytelling in there to kind of like develop intrigue to get us through a long talky scene like that these are the moments and uh, we can we'll talk about this more probably uh, next episode or the episode after <laughs> when we talk about Batman v Superman but these are the moments that I'm kind of like 1999 Look at where movies were, what they were doing. Look at what TV was doing because Sopranos had just debuted. And now you look at Daredevil and you're like, <laughs> like, how much has the superhero on screen revolution just taken us back, like, you know, bombed us back to some earlier narrative Stone Age? Now, that's a sweeping statement that I'm not going to even try to defend because there are counterexamples. But with Daredevil specifically, I am just like, oh boy, this the, the narrative and cinematic flabbiness is something that. You know, I, I it, it grinds me only to the extent that I, I, I feel as if we're now at the point where the fact that you're doing something slightly different with superheroes no longer justifies the fact that you're not doing anything right. with with the basics of what storytelling should I, be. I, I think this is. I think also, uh, yeah, I, I think with Daredevil season two. What I'm kind of seeing here is the problem of showrunners asking themselves, and maybe even a studio asking themselves, oh, okay, what are we going to do for season two? Well, what worked in season one? Um, what, you know, what can we realistically bring back? Um, and what do people want more of? So, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the conclusion they had was. People love the Matt Foggy Karen chemistry, so kind of give them scenes in which, like, they're having chemistry. You know, oh, boy. Um, uh, th- th- so there's that. Even though they're not really doing anything or telling any really story together through through, through their energy, they're just hanging out and like ha- having chemistry, Hang, hanging out playing pool. Hanging out there, playing there's pool. a ten minute scene of them hanging right. out and playing pool. There needs to be kind of like uh, at least one really well-directed choreographed fight scene per episode. That seems to be something that they also decided. Um, this is like Walking Dead in season three when it was like, we need to kill five zombies per episode right. now. Um, and um, we uh, and, 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 and people want more Daredevil in the costume. So let's give them more of that. Now, Who wants that? <laughs> right. Now, can we bring back Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin? Well, apparently either no or not yet. So how do we kind of replace that huge gaping hole which was, uh, you know, uh, in, in the story, I know, like, let's throw two characters into that hole and hope they fill it up, i.e. Oh. Electra and... and, uh, and uh, that's, like, straight and, up... And the Punisher. That's, like, straight up the, the like, Batman Forever model yeah, of superhero yeah. storytelling. Oof, boy. The, the other thing I would say is that my, my guess is that, like, Daredevil was... The second season of Daredevil was started to be developed. Well, I, now I... I, I Lay it out. Lay it out. Well, I was going to Random say, theory. The random theory was... I'm, I'm wondering how much... 
season two of Daredevil was developed before they saw the response to the first season of Jessica Jones. Because I think that Jessica Jones was a worthy complement to the first season of Daredevil, but built on the first season of Daredevil by like was an improvement upon that that season of Daredevil by being about something. Like I think the beauty of season two of, of the first season of Jessica Jones was and strangely enough, it's very similar to 10 Cloverfield Lane. I mean, you've got this allegory of rape victim, abuse victim, kind of overcoming kind of like this trauma and tragedy of the past, working it out in her course of her, you know, high heightened reality private investigator. That's interesting, Jeff, but let me counter. What if a guy who basically kills people has an argument with a guy who actually kills people about whether or not they should kill people? How about about that? (laughs) How about that as a concept? Not. The, the the eternal question of kill versus maim is, is is enough to power a season of television. But what I'm getting at is is that the first season of Jessica Jones, yeah, like Jessica Jones felt very relevant to our culture. It felt like it was about something, and I think it kind of raised a bar that that for 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 other Netflix Marvel shows that at least here with. Daredevil season two, like it, it, it doesn't clear the clear that bar at all. Um, and lastly, I would say, you know, my original impression of the entire Netflix Marvel experiment was that I, I guess I misunderstood it, which was I thought we were going to get like one season of Daredevil, one season of Jessica Jones, one season of Luke Cage, one season of Iron Fist. And then we would get one season with all of these characters like like combined in a show called The Defenders, right? And I kind of wonder if the whole Marvel Netflix experiment would be better if that's what they did. Because, uh, and, and it makes me wonder if then like second seasons of these individual shows was ever part of the original creative game plan for the show. Oh, that's interesting. You know what I mean? I mean like, yeah, season two of Daredevil gives us more characters pulled from the Daredevil universe. And yeah, there probably are more stories to tell with Daredevil, but really not that many. And I'm just kind of wondering if the whole creative um, exercise of the Marvel Netflix universe would have been better if it was just like, we get these standalone drill downs on one character every season Maybe with some of them, you know, like um, pollinating and, 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 and drifting into uh, other seasons. But Daredevil has an episode on Jessica Jones. For, for, yeah. for the Defenders. You know what I mean? That'd be interesting. Well, because I, I just think now the issue we're in is, you know, what's, what's Daredevil going to do in the future? I mean, you know, one easy way to rally the fandom is to say, we're doing Born Again. Or we're doing right. we're doing the Bendis stuff. Like, you know, this is the season when his identity gets out. And, you know, whatever. We can debate the merits of that. I personally feel as if if you're going to do that but not do it as artfully as the original stories did, then you're not going to necessarily satisfy what I'm looking for. The other option is they kind of do what they're doing now, which is, all right, we'll kind of... We'll kind of gradually bring in these characters, very gradually it sounds like. Like, you know, we'll, we'll bring in Kingpin in season one, we'll do Punisher and Elektra, and maybe somebody else in season two. But fundamentally, we're in this, we're in, we're in that kind of Thor 2 holding pattern now, where it's like, we can't do anything too radical until Defenders comes around. And I, I, I wonder if that's something we're going to feel in the season twos of these shows. Whereas, you know, season one of Daredevil, I, I liked I liked fine. Season one of Jessica Jones sounds very good. I haven't watched it yet. Season one of Luke Cage, I'm very excited for. I wonder if it's going to be that kind of... Essentially, these are 12-hour movies. So there will be good first 12-hour movies followed by Marvel has this huge sequel plot problem where most of their sequels are not right. that great. So I, I, I wonder if, if that's what we're going to be ex- experiencing. Well, um, with- with Daredevil season two, the big question I want answered, and this is a big reason why I'm going to watch the, the remainder of of season two, is as a fan of those Frank Miller, of the Frank Miller Daredevil era, and I would, uh, and, and and as a fan of the whole Elektra saga, um, how much are they going to do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like so far, based on the two Elektra episodes I saw. There was no real indication that they were. There's no indication yet that Elektra has like the the dark mystic ninja past. She's not from the hand. No, was it the hand or was no, it? The, the, <laughs> it's kind of a, a a slight 
well, it, it seems to be a slight reformulation of, of the Electra that we know. But then again, maybe we just haven't learned enough about her right. yet, too. So it'll be interesting to see if they really kind of get into that um, uh, in, in, in the latter half of the season, which means that if they do, then are we sort of driving toward certain huge events that we know from the Electra story, like i.e. her death, i.e. her resurrection, and uh, is she a one-season proposition? Does she come back? And where the hell is Bullseye? Yeah, well, that, that sounds like something that it may be happening in season three or four, and I'm already kind of weary of season two. Um, <laughs> and you've only watched one episode. I've only watched w- w- one episode. I think instead I may get around to finally watching Jessica Jones. Uh, Jeff, um... Pleasure talking to you. Next week, I believe, we'll be doing our Batman v Superman episode. Um, or maybe we'll just do a Fountainhead book club. <laughs> Stick around for that. Right, yes. uh, Jeff Jensen, always a pleasure. You too, Dan. Thank you for listening. <laughs>